This, this is the Second Second Story Podcast. Welcome back to the Second Story Podcast. I'm Max Spence. Have you ever laughed at the wrong time? You're so angry or upset or confused and you can't help but laugh because emotions are happening and they might as well come out that way. This month is Mental Health Awareness Month. And in light of that, I've been thinking a lot about how the human body has no idea how to process extreme emotions. You personally, whenever my anxiety starts to spike, my body makes me nauseous. You may be out of some misguided attempt to purge the invisible toxins. When I was picking the episode for this week, I was struck by the joy present in what is, at its core, a story about loss. In this story, teller Annabelle Lang shares a beautiful example of how we can find joy even in moments of personal grief. Recorded live at Pub 626 in Chicago in November 2018, Second Story is proud to present Closer Than Far. It was Friday. We are 17 and bored. Growing up in Columbia, South Carolina, the kind of place where we had to be 21 to get any place fun after dark. On weekends, if nobody's parents were out of town, we usually kill time before curfews listening to mix CDs in the Sonic parking lot or sneaking onto the same playgrounds we used to visit as little kids. We drink Gatorade mixed with Bacardi Rass. Mm. And then hang from the monkey bars and spin on a tire swing, a slight buzz making all our old games new again. But on this night, we decided to get high and drive to the graveyard and have a water balloon fight. <laughs> I don't remember why. <laughs> so teenagers do have a certain genius for novelty. We'd been high, we'd been to the graveyard, and we'd had water balloon fights, but we'd never done all three at the same time. <laughs> we picked Elmwood because it was a sprawling cemetery with lots of ground to cover, and none of us had any relatives buried there. The graveyard was by a highway, so light pollution cut into the dark and we could make out the well-worn path, the square outlines of grave markers and half-crumbled crosses. We set our bucket in a central place far from the road, grabbed as many water balloons as we could hold and sprinted off in all directions, whooping and cackling, infinitely pleased with ourselves and exactly high enough to make this excellent. Time wobbled and stretched and shined for us, like those clocks in Salvador Dali's paintings, except less menacing, more hilarious. Whenever we got close enough to each other to make a hit, we'd take aim. The balloons arched awkwardly through the air, then exploded, scattering bright bits of shrapnel over the graves. I lobbed an overfull balloon at my friend Danny. It was about the weight of a kidney in my hand, and I missed. <laughs> It ruptured against a headstone, left a wet streak across the name of some dearly departed stranger. I hadn't thought about ghosts until that moment. And then I did, and then I forgot. <laughs> I felt a wet pop against my shoulder, and I turned around. Got you! Danny pointed, laughed, and ran off before I could retaliate. With our balloon supply exhausted, we piled back in the car. As soon as we exited the parking lot, red and blue lights flashed in our back window. While the police officer ran our plates, we screamed at each other, 
debating whether we needed to shove the little bit of weed in the bowl we had up our butts. <laughs> the cop knocked on the window. We rolled it down. All right, kids. Now, I know folks are only in the graveyard at night. They're lost or doing drugs. Which is it? Lost. <laughs> we chorused. I thought that might be it. Where are you trying to get to? Uh, we were on our way to get donuts? The driver lied. Well, then you are really lost because Krispy Kreme is on the other side of town. Trust me, I'm a cop. <laughs> I know where the donuts are. <laughs> he made sure we thought his joke was funny and then he let us go because four of us were white and Danny was Colombian, but he could pass as white in the dark. We were quiet in the car as we drove away. Danny spoke up first, not to say anything reasonable like, wow, that was a close one, but to return to an argument he'd been having with our friend Kirby before we got pulled over. I cannot remember what they were arguing about. I was stunned he still cared enough to bring it back up and if it's possible to be so incredulous that you momentarily black out, then maybe that's what happened. I do remember turning around to him in the back seat and demanding, what is wrong with you? But he didn't even hear me. He was too lasered in on his hot, irrelevant debate. That's my favorite Danny story because it is young and dumb and that's who we were together along with the rest of our friends and because the way he reacted in the car afterwards was so him. Danny had a proprietary combination of distraction and attention. He was infuriating to watch movies with because he'd make you pause every five minutes and explain what was happening. You'd been playing with a dog or blading the, braiding the fringes on the blanket. But under certain conditions, he could really hone in, like in math class, in pursuit of a laugh, or when he was trying to extend an argument, not to win, just to keep it going. This is as far as I can go before I tell you Danny is dead now. Five years after the graveyard incident and six before today, he died of a rare and aggressive form of testicular cancer. A few months after his funeral, another friend reached out to me to ask for a story about Danny. He was compiling a book of memories for his parents, and I didn't submit the graveyard story. We'd been high and trespassing, and I was 22, still young enough to believe a code of silence can protect parents and children from each other. But it's probably also true that I didn't share that story because I was hoarding it. When someone older dies, there's a dispersal of belongings. It can get contentious if there are valuables involved or large sums of money, but it's never really about the stuff. It's about gathering material evidence that proves the relationships between the dead person and their loved ones really did exist. Because Danny was so young when he died, he didn't have many possessions, and what was there, his friends didn't have any claim to. His mom dutifully distributed his T-shirts amongst us, but that was it. In the absence of stuff, stories became both a way to remember Danny and a way to prove you had the right to remember him. At least that's the way it felt to me. 
when he died, I combed my mind carefully as if a certain number of stories would make me entitled to my own grief. I was sure I could calibrate my sadness. I was sure there was an objectively correct amount of sadness each person should feel based on their degree of closeness to Danny. But I was confused as to how close Danny and I had been. He was never my best friend. We spent a lot of time together growing up, but he was more like my best friend in law. Danny was Ree's best friend, and Ree was Mary and Megan and my best friend. When he got sick, Ree's connection to him tilted the rest of us in his direction. We became like his personal USO show, visiting him in the hospital when we came home from college, sending him cards and audio recordings, making him banana bread he couldn't eat, but nonetheless appreciative. The four of us, Ree, Mary, Megan, and I, still talk about Danny, though not as much as we used to. Now, when we're all together, it's usually a birthday or a holiday, and there are new friends around, coworkers and partners and crushes. It doesn't always seem fair to introduce the fact of our dead friend at a party. If people don't already know, it makes them sad and uncomfortable. But lately, I've been worrying this omission also reflects the old impulse to hoard Danny's memory. There is one story, though, that Mary, Megan, and Ree and I do tell a lot at parties. And it is about Danny, though we usually don't make that part explicit. The story is actually about the day Danny died. It was the summer between our junior and senior years of college. Ree, Mary, Megan, and I hadn't seen Danny in person in half a year because he'd been abroad receiving experimental treatments until he fell into a coma, which lasted four months. On the day he died, the rest of us were in South Carolina, visiting for different reasons. We hadn't planned on being home together that day. It's just the way it happened. Serendipity is probably not the right word. About seven hours after we got the news via web of phone calls and texts and status postings, I sat on my parents' porch waiting for Reed to pick me up. They pulled up in their rattling Honda. Mary and Megan were already in the car. If this were a party, I would have left out all of that context from before and started the story right here with me sliding into the back seat next to Megan, numbly tracing the cigarette burns on the back of Ree's headrest while Mary and Ree discussed how many brownies we should eat. The brownies were the special kind. <laughs> Mary had gotten them from a friend who'd warned her they were kind of old and crusty as well as extra potent. So there's three and a half, Mary prodded the plastic drop bundles in her lap. Let's eat everything we have, sound good? Ree looked at Megan and I in the back seat for confirmation. We mutually shrugged. Bye y'all, Ree said as they bit in. Then they started the car and we chugged towards an Indian buffet. Dinner was unremarkable until the check came and we struggled to do the math necessary to pay the bill, an even four-way split. <laughs> Realizing we were all way too high to drive home, Mary called a friend who picked us up and took us back to her place to convalesce. Because this friend had just moved in, she didn't have any furniture yet. Her apartment was bare, like the lair of a well-practiced serial killer. 
Megan collapsed onto the only chair in the living room, a hand clapped to her forehead, a la Blanche Dubois. I lay belly down on the hardwood, and Mary ran around us in figure eights, pursued by hallucinations. Time did its usual high thing, slowing, stretching, melting, but now my body went with it. I was a dolly clock, face slack, hands falling off. After about 100,000 years, I sensed the presence of a body beside me. It was re-mumbling, I'm not doing too hot. Oh, no, I thought. Because if Re was too high, the rest of us might never come back from this. Re was my druggiest friend. They had taken part in the water balloon incident back in high school, and it was their weed we smoked because it was always their weed. Since college, Re had moved on to drugs I thought people only did in movies, and then drugs I'd never even heard of. As Danny's health got worse, Ree's substance adventures got even more intense, but at the time, I didn't make the connection between grief and the desire to skew consciousness. By I'm not doing too hot, Ree probably did mean I am far too high. But they also meant my heart is broken. When the four of us tell this story, I think we do it in part to reaffirm an unspoken agreement we have to share our portion of grief in a certain way. We all had different relationships to Danny, so we all lost him differently. But we also lost him together. Whatever we became when he was sick, a team, a cheerleading squad, a collective mess, the Brownie story proves that formation really did exist. I don't know if Danny would recognize any of us now. We look different, we are different, we grew up. But as a group, there's continuity. To a certain extent, I wonder if we froze into a shape that holds Danny's absence. And if that's true, it's another thing he left us. The end of the story of how we got high, drove to the graveyard and have a water balloon fight is after our conversation with the police officer, we really did get donuts. The end of the story of how we ate crusty old wee brownies, got high and melted into an empty apartment, is we peeled ourselves off the floor and walked home. That story I submitted to the Book of Memories for Danny's parents was about how when we were 18, he and I were the only ones who hadn't left for college yet. So he came over to my house and we sat side by side towing the porch swing back and forth. That moment did not feel like much of anything as it was happening, but maybe it was the beginning of the end of being kids together. Eight months ago, I tried to contact Danny. I forgot he was dead. The last time I saw him, we were all hanging out at Mary's apartment, cracking jokes, listening to music. It was getting late. Megan and I got up from the love seat to go. Mary was in the middle of a, telling a long story. She, she didn't pause, she just waved. Ree was sitting on the floor. Danny was sitting next to them, leaning back against the couch. His eyes were wide open. He was laughing. Prove to me I'm not gonna die alone But
This story was curated by Vince Pagan, produced by Jenna Myers, and directed by Jessica Scott, with music and sound designed by Shane Longbane. The Second Story podcast is produced by Max Spitz. Second Story is located in the traditional homelands of the Council of the Three Fires, the Odawa, Ojibwe, and Potawatomi Nations. Our programming is made possible by the MacArthur Fund for Arts and Culture at the Richard H. Driehaus Foundation, the Paul M. Angel Family Foundation, the Gaylord and Dorothy Donnelly Foundation, Illinois Arts Council Agency, Innovation 80, the Lupo Family, Eric Rothstein and Gina Wamek, Athene Karras and Thomas Applegate, James Lupo, Jessica Wetmore, Jeffrey and Joan Goldwater, Katie and Peter Hauser, and many generous individuals like you. I'm Max Spitz, and this, this, this is the Second, Second Story Podcast.